بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهدي الله فلا مذل له ومن يذله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد ما جاء بارز السستر السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته so we continue our discussion with Imam Nawis for the hadith. We are now in hadith number nine. And this is the hadith of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu where he says, An Abi Hurairah radiallahu anhu, uh, An Abi Hurairah Abdurrahman ibn Sakhir radiallahu anhu qal, Sameatu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yaqul, Ma nahaytukum anhu fajtanibuhu wa ma amartukum bihi faf'alu minhu mastata'atum, fa inna ma ahlaka alladhina min qablikum kathiratu masailihim ikhtilafuhum ala anbiya'ihim. So on the authority of Abu Huraira, Abdurrahman ibn Sakhir, may Allah be pleased with him, who said, I heard the Messenger of Allah وسلم, say, what I have forbidden for you, stay away from. And what I have ordered you to do, do as much of it as you can. Verily the people before you were destroyed only because of their excessive questioning and their, their disagreeing with the Prophets. This hadith was narrated by Al-Bukhari and Al-Muslim. Now, when looking at a hadith, you always want to look at what was the reason that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said this hadith so that you can understand the context behind it. The context behind this hadith, my dear brothers and sisters, was that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he had just told the people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded Hajj upon you. And you would think, you know, the people would rejoice, Alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has legislated hajj, they would become happy, maybe some people would become sad. But one of the people inside of the audience, one of the first things that comes to his mind, Messenger of Allah, do we have to do this every year? The Messenger of Allah completely ignored him. Until again, the man says, Messenger of Allah, do we have to do this every year? Again, the Messenger of Allah ignores him. A third time, he raises his hand, Messenger of Allah, do we have to do this every year? And then finally, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, at that time, he tells him that if I were to say yes, it would become obligatory upon you, and not all of you would be able to do this. Whatever I have commanded you to do, do as much of it as you can. And that which I have forbidden for you, then stay away from it altogether. And that was the reason of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, mentioning this hadith. Now what's interesting to look at, and we're going to talk about the concept of questioning later on but how the Messenger of Allah وسلم, in this place, one of the very few instances where the Messenger of Allah وسلم, would not answer someone's question, would not answer someone's question. And this teaches us a very valuable lesson that not every question deserves an answer. Not every question deserves an answer. And we're going to look at this in some detail later on So that's the reason why this hadith actually came forward that one of the, question, one of the companions was asking a question that was not worthy at that time. Now looking at the narrator of this hadith, the narrator of this hadith is Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, he is far more famous by his kunya by Abu Huraira than he actually is by his name. And that is why when you actually try to look his name up in the books of history, you find that there's so much difference of opinion. The strongest opinion seems that the name of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu was Abdurrahman ibn Sakhar al-Dawsi. Abdurrahman ibn Sakhar al-Dawsi. He was born 17 years before the Hijrah and he died 59 years after the Hijrah. So 17 years before the Hijrah and 59 years after the Hijrah. So how old was he when he died? Who can tell me? 32? He died 59 after. <laughs> so how old was he? Raise your hand. 60, 67, 76. 
10, 15, 20. <laughs> okay, so you have 17 before the Hijrah, right? So that's 17 years already, until the Hijrah. And he died 59 after. So you have to put these two numbers together. 76. Fantastic. There we go. Alhamdulillah. So he was 76 years old. Now from the virtues of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu, is that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam made dua for his memory. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu made dua for his memory. And this is one of the beautiful things about Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu, that he within, he within of one of himself is one of the signs of the prophethood of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. How so? Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu, he accepted Islam in the year 7 after Hijrah, which was the year of Khaybar. So right after Khaybar, that's when Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu accepted Islam. He stayed with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam for approximately three to three and a half years. And in this three and a half years of limited Islam, Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu goes on to narrate more hadith than any other companion. Over 5,000 hadith directly narrated from Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu. Now how did Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu narrate so many hadith from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam? Imam al-Bukhari in his Sahih, he actually has a chapter about how Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu narrated so many hadith. Now what's important to look at and we'll discuss several points related to Abu Hurairah. Number one is that the reason why Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu had such a good memory and was able to narrate so much was the dua of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Number two, the practical steps that Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu used to take. Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu intentionally lived inside of the masjid. He intentionally lived inside of the masjid. He refused to go and do business. He refused to you know, go into farming. And he actually is, it's narrated in Sahih al-Bukhari that Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu said, was asked, you know, how did you learn so many ahadith? And he said, the muhajirun, they came into Medina, they got busy with their tradesmanship. They were busy buying and selling. The Ansar, they were busy with their date farms. So they were busy being farmers. As for myself, I dedicated myself to learning from the Messenger of Allah and I stayed inside of the masjid. And he narrates a, you know, a very, very funny story, subhanAllah. And we will, you'll see the, 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 the humor at the end of it, not at the beginning of it. So he says that I stayed inside the masjid and it used to depend upon the sadaqah of the people. That I wouldn't work because I wanted to accompany the Messenger of Allah وسلم, all the time. So one day, I got so hungry that I started having a seizure in the masjid. So he starts having a seizure in the masjid. What do the people assume? The people start shouting, he has a jinn, he has a jinn. People start coming, they put their foot on him, and they start beating him up trying to get the jinn out of him. <laughs> Eventually his seizure ends and he's like, what's wrong with you people? I'm not having a seizure because I'm possessed by a jinn. I'm just hungry, someone get me some food. So as soon as he says this, everyone runs away. No one has any food to give Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. So Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, what does he decide to do? He says, you know what, let me go and get some food before I have another seizure. He goes to Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, and it's not polite, you know, asking someone, can I please have some food? So he says, oh Umar, you know, I have a question for you about revelation. Can I accompany you to your house to ask you the question? Very intelligent way, mashallah. So he asks him a question, they get to the house of Umar ibn al-Khattab, and contrary to common practice, Umar excuses himself and he says, look, I have to go, I have some things that I need to do. So he's like, you know, that didn't work out. Let me go back to the masjid. He goes back to the masjid, he finds Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, does the exact same thing. He goes to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he says, look, I have a question about revelation. Can I accompany you to wherever you're going? 
He comes Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu to his house, asks his question. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu excuses himself as well. <laughs> now he knows, look, if Amr didn't work out, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu didn't work out, there's only one shot left. That's with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He goes and hunts down the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He says, Ya Rasulullah, you know, I have a question about revelation. Can I accompany you wherever you're going? The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam says, sure. And he knows what is happening by, uh, by already. Like he saw what happened. He has the stories of the town. So he comes to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam to his house. And lo and behold, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam does something shocking. That without even excusing himself, he goes into the house and he leaves Abu Hurairah outside. So Abu Hurairah, he's perplexed. He's like, what just happened? You know, not only did I leave without food, but it seems that the Messenger of Allah is angry at me. The Messenger of Allah waits for a while. And then from inside of his house, he shouts out. He says, oh Aish, calling out Aisha radiallahu anha. Do we have any food to give our guests? So here Abu Hurairah he becomes happy. Now what's interesting over here, my dear brothers and sisters, is that we learn about the lifestyle of the Messenger of Allah He's asking Aisha radiallahu anha, do we have any food at home to serve our guests? You know, at us, we know what type of foods we'll have. We'll have like bread, eggs, peanut butter, something like that. But the Messenger of Allah due to the times that he's living in, has food limited for that day alone. And Aisha radiallahu anha, she says that we have some milk with which we can give our guests. And this was like a big treat for their guests. You can imagine uh, in our day and age, you invite your friends and family over for dinner and you're like, hey, what's for dinner? Here's some milk. They'd be like, what type of invitation was this? You know, they wouldn't be happy and content. So as soon as Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu says that, you know, finds out that there's milk, he becomes overjoyed. So he comes inside, uh, the Messenger of Allah invites him in, and you know, you can see that he starts salivating. He's getting, you know, anxious to have this milk. What does the Messenger of Allah do? He says, Ya Abu Huraira, go invite your brothers from Ahlul Sufa. Ahlul Sufa are the other poor people that live inside of the masjid. We're going to have a gathering with all of the people. So Abu Huraira, you know, a little bit disheartened, he thought he'd have all this milk by himself. He goes and he gets Ahlul Sufa. What does he do? Runs to Ahlul Sufa, makes the announcement, and runs back to the house of the Messenger of Allah to be first. And the Messenger of Allah he says, Fantastic Abu Huraira, you came back first? You can serve our guests tonight. <laughs> so the Messenger of Allah gives him this cauldron of milk. And it's, you can imagine like it's a big pot. And one by one, Abu Huraira has to give it to each one of the guests who drinks from the cauldron and gives it back to Abu Huraira to give to the next guest. So this full pot that he had is now slowly being reduced, slowly being reduced, until finally it comes all the way to the end and there's just a little bit left. And the Messenger of Allah still hasn't drank yet. So Abu Huraira, he thinks to himself, you know, if I don't give it to the Messenger of Allah first, it's going to look very bad on me. So he gives it to the Messenger of Allah and you can see like Abu Huraira completely being disheartened at this time. This is supposed to be my food. He gives it to the Messenger of Allah and the Messenger of Allah and this is again from the miracles of the Messenger of Allah. One narration mentions he blows in it, the other one mentions that he spits in it. But either case, the milk becomes full. And he gives it to Abu Huraira He tells him drink. And Abu Huraira he says, I drank until I could drink no more and the cauldron was finished. Then the Messenger of Allah said drink some more. And I drank again till I could drink no more. And the Messenger of Allah commanded me to drink again until I could drink no more. It was as if I felt like the milk was going to come out of me at that time. 
So this was the state of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. And you know, it shows you the difficult lifestyle he had to go through in order to collect all of these hadith, days upon days, sometimes without food, relying upon the sadaqah of the people. So this is how Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu got to that stage where he narrated so many hadith that he was in the constant company of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Another virtue of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu is that during the time of Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, he was made a governor of Bahrain. He was made the governor of Bahrain for a short amount of time. Now Bahrain back in the days, not the Bahrain, the country that we have now. Bahrain, the country we have right now is just like a small island type thing. But Bahrain back in the time of the Messenger of Allah and during the time of the Khulafa, it's actually the southern part of Saudi Arabia known as the area as uh, Al-Hassa. Al-Hassa was known as Bahrain back in the day and Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu was a governor of that place during the Khilafah of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. Now looking at the wording of this hadith, looking at the wording of this hadith, he narrates that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, مَا نَحَيْتُكُمْ عَنْهُ فَاجْتَنِبُهُ That those things that I have prohibited you from, then stay away from them. The term nahi in the Arabic language it automatically takes one of two contexts. Meaning that there is no third context when the term nahi is mentioned over here. So the nahi that is given by the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam will automatically mean one of two things. Number one, and this is the predominant case, is that it is something which is prohibited. So when the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says that you are prohibited from doing something, it means that it has become haram for you to do this. It has become haram for you to do this. This is the general case scenario. Then the second case with the nahi of the Messenger of Allah, the prohibition of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is that when he gives a prohibition, then sometimes it would be considered to be disliked. Sometimes it would be considered to be disliked, but the general case scenario is that anytime there is prohibition, then it shows uh, impermissibility, and sometimes the exception will be that it will only show dislike. It will only show disliked. So anytime there's a commandment, then you have to stay away from it completely. And it's very important to notice the wording of the Messenger of Allah as he talks about these two different things. That's when there's a prohibition, stay away from it completely. There's no exceptions to the rule. However, when there's a commandment, then do from it as much as you possibly can. Do from it as much as you possibly can, which is the second part of the hadith. Now, the command of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So the first part was prohibition, which is the nahi. Now the command, the amr of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Same thing with the amr of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Anytime there's a commandment, then it will give you one of two things. It is the predominant case that you have to do what the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said. And then the exception to the rule is, sometimes you will understand from it that you know what, it is a good thing to do. Meaning that it's something recommended to do, but it is not completely compulsory. And this is the exception to the rule. This is the exception to the rule. Now you'll notice that these two statements over here, from these two statements, you can derive a wide variety of fiqh principles. And that is what the scholars of fiqh actually did. And that's what we want to cover over here. That when it comes to the commandments of the Messenger of Allah wasallam, he says, do that which you are able to do. Now what exactly does this mean? Does this mean if you know one day, you know I'm having a difficult time praying, I don't have to pray because the Messenger of Allah said that do what you're able to do and sometimes you know you might not be able to. Then the answer to that is no, that is not what this hadith is referring to. What this hadith is referring to my dear brothers and sisters is that there's certain things that Islam will be flexible upon and there's certain things that Islam will not be flexible upon. 
So in matters of salah, the performance of salah, then this is something that Islam is not flexible on at all. So you'll notice that a person has to pray while he's traveling, he has to pray while he's sick, even in times of war, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has taught us how to pray during those times. That you have two groups, one prays, the other one looks, keeps guard, then the other prays and the other one keeps guard. So it, it has to be done. However, what this is talking about is that even in those fundamental issues where there is no flexibility, then in the characteristics of those fundamental issues, there is flexibility, there is flexibility. So for example, someone is having pain in his body, he can't pray while standing, then Islam allows him to pray while sitting. If he can't even pray while sitting, Islam allows him to pray while laying down. If he can't even pray while laying down, then Islam allows him just to make gestures with his eyes and that would be sufficient. So fulfilling the commands of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have to understand which of the two it falls into. Is it from those issues that there is flexibility upon, that you can you know, do as much of it as you possibly can? Or is it from those matters that it is only in their characteristics that there's flexibility upon? And then you should stick to that matter and take the concession in the characteristics of that thing. Now, let us look at the relative uh, importance of commandments and prohibitions. So I want you to think about the following question. Think about the following question. You as a Muslim, which one is more important for you? Which one is more important for you? Staying away from the prohibitions or fulfilling the commands that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given? Which one should be a priority for us? So if one has to focus on one, should one focus on fulfilling the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Or should one focus on staying away from the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited? Who would like to discuss this matter? Who can give me an answer? Both is important. Both is important. Fantastic. Now if you have to give focus to one, which one do you give focus to? Which is which one? Fulfilling the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay. And how about the prohibitions? Try as much as you can. It's the opposite. But okay, let's look at the story of Adam and Iblis. The story of Adam and Iblis. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave Adam a commandment or a prohibition? Which one did he give him? Adam alayhi salam. He gave him a prohibition. He said, stay away from this tree. Don't go near this tree. Iblis, what did he give Iblis? A commandment or a prohibition? Which was? Fantastic. He gave him the command to prostrate. So now, who did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive and who did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not forgive? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgave Adam alayhi salam and he didn't forgive Iblis. And this is the basis of Ibn al-Qayyim's argument where he says that fulfilling the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is greater than staying away from those things that he prohibited. Now Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he was actually against the majority of scholars. The majority of scholars said that the focus of the Muslim should be abstaining from those matters that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited and then focus on doing those things that he is able to do. But I think both of these arguments, they go outside the, the, the spectrum of reality. Because the first thing a person needs to do is enter inside the fold of Islam, right? So you have to fulfill the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in entering to the fold of Islam and doing those things that will keep you inside the fold of Islam. So the first obligation is the shahada fulfilling that command, then the prayer and then zakah. Now once a, prayer, a person has fulfilled these three matters, the shahadas, the salah and the zakah, it is at that time that a person should 
Focus on staying away from those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited. Staying away from those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited. Now, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu there's a bit of ikhtilaf on the authenticity of the hadith. He actually told Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu, ittaqil maharima takun a'bad nas That if you were to stay away from those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited, then you would be the best of all worshippers. You would be the best of all worshippers. And this is where the combination needs to take place. That once you fulfilled the obligations that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put upon you. So you've said your shahada, you're Muslim already. You've, you're praying five times a day. You're giving your zakat when it's due. You're fasting in the Ramadan. Once you fulfilled these basic commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then the next step is making sure you're staying away from the prohibitions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited you from, you have to stay away from them. And that is the second level. And this is like a big problem in the community that sometimes you'll find, you know, mashallah, people who are praying their five daily prayers, but you'll find them, you know, indulging in like riba-based contracts. Or you'll find, you know, a sister that mashallah, she's gone for her hajj, but then at the same time, she's not, you know, doing the basic things of covering herself. So the prohibition of you know, uh, not leaving the house while wearing perfume and things like that, she takes it very, very lightly. In Islam, there needs to be a combination between the two. That if you're doing the fundamentals of Islam, this needs to be accompanied with staying away from those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited. And this is why you'll see a contradiction in the community that people have this perception that these acts of worship that I do, they're going to protect me in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But in reality, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to hold us accountable not only for the compulsory deeds, but even for the sins that we commit as well. So the sins that we commit, we need to stay away from them altogether. And this is like one of the best acts of worship that a person can do. You know, from time to time we look at what are, you know, as a good act of worship that I can do. Focus on staying away from those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited. Staying away from lying. You know, such a difficult task for a lot of people. Something to focus on. Focus on staying away from gossiping and from backbiting. And, you know, participating in, in those sins that we shouldn't be indulging in. Looking at those things that we shouldn't be looking at. That is one of the best acts of worship that you stay away from those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited you from. And that is the second level. And then the third level is once you stay away from those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited you from, then you focus on doing the supererogatory deeds, doing those things that are recommended. So those are the three levels of faith a person should be working on in that order. Number one, doing the fundamentals, the pillars of Islam. Number two, focusing on staying away from those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited. And then number three, then you work on doing the supererogatory deeds, doing those things that are recommended. Then the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa he says, Verily the people before you were destroyed only because of their excessive questioning. Now when you study the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawi, you find that one of the fundamental hadith that Imam al-Nawi brings is the hadith of Jibreel. And the hadith of Jibreel is purely based upon questioning. That he came and asked, what is Islam? What is Iman? What is Ihsan? When is the Day of Judgment? What are its signs? These are all questions. So why is the Messenger of Allah saying that people were destroyed because of their excessive questioning? And how do we understand this in context? How do we understand this in context? The context of this, my dear brothers and sisters, is that what is disliked in Islam are questions that don't meet two conditions. Number one, are questions that are void of sincerity. So we're asking questions for the sake of showing off. 
We're asking questions for the sake of starting a debate. We're asking questions for the sake of showing how much we want and we know. So this is you know, the first set of questions that shouldn't be asked. And that is questions that lack sincerity from the person asking the question. The second set of questions that are disliked in Islam and prohibited are those questions that have no practical value. Those questions that have no practical value. And this is something that happened recently. I don't know for those of you that follow like social media, but there was this fatwa about uh, going to live on Mars. Did anyone come across that fatwa? What's the fatwa on living on Mars? You came across it, a couple of you? So a question that was asked that, you know, if you do go live on Mars, you know, where, which direction do you pray in at that time? And let's just say you come across an alien, is it allowed to eat that alien? So these are, the, these are serious questions that people are asked on like a famous scholar's page. And I'm just thinking, subhanAllah, you know, find the technology first to go and live on Mars, see if it's actually possible. And you know, when it's time to pray, figure it out. But my, the question that came to my mind first is you're worrying about, you know, praying on Mars. What were you doing with your salah on your way to Mars? You know, it will take you a good couple of days, if months, I'm not sure how long it would take to even get to Mars. What were you doing for salah at that time? So these sort of questions, they have no practical benefit, right? So a person cannot make amal upon these questions. So we want to focus on that the next time when we ask questions, these two criteria need to be met. Number one, it is a question filled with sincerity that we're asking this for the sake of getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And number two, we're asking this question because it is something that we can practically implement, something that we can introduce into our lives and take into action right away. And if these two criteria are not being met, then these questions should not be asked. These questions should not be asked. And this is something that we saw from the Messenger of Allah وسلم, during his time. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Ma'idah, He clearly gives the believers a commandment. He says, all you who believe, do not ask questions that if you were to give, be given the answer to them, they would become difficult upon you. This is in Surah Al-Ma'idah verse 101. And that is why you see that Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu, he narrates in Sahih Muslim, he says that the companions that lived inside Medina, they were not allowed asking questions. They were not allowed asking questions. And that is why you see that the vast majority of questions that we find in the books of Hadith, a Bedouin man came to the Messenger of Allah and asked a question. So it is the people that lived on the outskirts that didn't have direct access to the Messenger of Allah, didn't hear the direct explanations of the Messenger of Allah they're the ones that are allowed to ask questions. And that is why the companions used to get so happy when an outsider used to come and ask an intelligent question. Because this was their opportunity to learn the deen. This was their opportunity to learn the deen. Now you can see what excessive questioning can do during the time of the Messenger of Allah that someone asks, you know, why do we have to pray five times a day? I can pray more than that. Then the Messenger of Allah says, you know what, go ahead and pray more. Then all of a sudden, you know, all of us, we have to pray like seven salahs a day now, or ten salahs a day now. And not everyone is capable of that. And that is why the Messenger of Allah prohibited the people from asking excessive questions. And I want to share a very interesting hadith with you, narrated in Bukhari and Muslim, where the Messenger of Allah says, That the Messenger of Allah says, the Muslim with the greatest sin with respect to other 
other Muslims, is the one who asked about something which was not forbidden, but became forbidden due to his questioning. Due to his questioning, reported by Bukhari and Muslim. Now you understand why. Because the Messenger of Allah during the time of revelation, any answer that he gives is going to fall under a commandment or a prohibition. And any time there's a commandment or a prohibition, it's generally like you have to stay away from it until evidence comes that you are allowed to do it. Or if there's a commandment, you have to do it until evidence comes that you know what, there's a concession that you don't have to do in certain situations. So that was during the time of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, that they would be discouraged from asking questions due to this very reason. So now this leads us into a discussion on what is the correct approach towards seeking knowledge. That you know, hey, if I can't ask all the questions that I want, you know, what should I do in this situation? The first thing we need to remember, my dear brothers and sisters, is that like all other acts of ibadah, the greatest thing a person can have is sincerity. The greatest thing a person can have is sincerity and being conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is why in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us that have taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wa yu'allimukumullah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will then teach you. But when a person does not have sincerity and a person does not have consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then no matter what he tries to do, he'll not be able to gain that knowledge. The second step is understanding what knowledge actually is. You know, people have this perception in our day and age that just because a scholar says something, a famous speaker says something, then that becomes the deen within of itself. But in actuality, that is not the case. Our deen is based upon three matters. It is based upon three matters. Number one, the Qur'an. Number two, the Sunnah. And number three, the Ijma' of the companions. Outside of the scope of these three things, there is no other source of knowledge. That knowledge will be derived from these three sources and built upon. So these are the foundations of all knowledge. So a person wants to familiarize himself with these three things. Making sure he has a good portion of reading of the Qur'an. He's familiar with what the Qur'an states. Reading of the Sunnah. And this is something that's abandoned in our time. This is something that's completely abandoned in our time. Is just reading through the books of Hadith. You know, I, was, I asked one of my teachers, uh, Sheikh Mashur Hassan Salman, that you know, what advice do you have for a person who wants to become a student of knowledge in the West? And he gave some very beautiful advice. He said he should be doing three things. He should be doing three things. Number one, have a regular reading of the Qur'an. Meaning reading the Qur'an from beginning to end with understanding it. He didn't explain what regular meant. I was afraid to ask him what it meant. Because if he said, you know, a weekly reading of the Qur'an, I, I knew that would be too difficult for myself. But regular reading of the Qur'an. Number two, he actually, uh, sorry, correction over here, not regular reading of the Qur'an, a regular reading of a book of tafsir. So make a priority that on a yearly basis, you want to read a regular book of tafsir. Number two, reading Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim cover to cover, to cover every year. Reading Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim from cover to cover every year. And then number three, he said to focus on those things that will soften your heart. And he mentioned reading the seerah of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and reading the books that deal with spirituality like Riyadh al-Salihin. Like Riyadh al-Salihin. So the student of knowledge should focus on those three things. Have a regular reading of books of tafsir, regular reading of books of hadith like Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, and regular readings of those things that will soften their heart. 
And you'll notice that with a combination of these three things, and you have you know, a person to monitor your progress, then bithinlahi ta'ala, you'll not only be able to learn the basics of your deen, but bithinlahi ta'ala, you'll be more successful in your knowledge than the vast majority of people. So you'll notice just reading a little bit each day, it will take you very, very far. So the emphasis here is on reading. The emphasis here is on reading and implementing after you have sincerity with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then the last part of the hadith, it goes on to say, Verily the people before you were destroyed only because of their disagreeing with their prophets. Only because of their disagreeing with their prophets. And one of the clearest examples of this inside of the Quran is the story of Bani Israel inside Surah Al-Baqarah. Inside Surah Al-Baqarah from verses 67 to 71. And the scholars of Tafsir mention a story over here. And the verse that we're talking about is when Musa alayhi salam, he commanded Bani Israel, go and slaughter a cow. What was the reaction of Bani Israel? Are you mocking us? Are you making fun of us? This is how they treated their Prophet subhanAllah. Then they said, go and ask Allah what type of cow it should be. Go ask Allah what color it should be. And they just completely, you know, disregarded the authority of Musa salam, subhanAllah. The Messenger of Allah, and there's a bit of khtilaf on this hadith, that he said that, إِنَّ بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلَ لَوْ أَخَذُوا أَدْنَى بَقَرَةً لَأَجْزَأَتْهُمْ That had Bani Israel taken the smallest, weakest, skimpiest cow and just slaughtered it for the sake of Allah, it would have sufficed them. But they kept asking questions and kept disagreeing with their prophets until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered their questions and made it difficult for them. Now let's look at the context of what happened over here. What happened is, and this is like from the Israeliyat, this is from the stories, there's not a hadith behind this, but it is said that one of Bani Israel had killed another individual accidentally. So Musa alayhi salam, he asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that tell them to sacrifice a cow. Tell them to sacrifice a cow. And had they just fulfilled that commandment, it would have been sufficient for them. But since he asked so many questions, it ended up leading to one of the most expensivest of cows. So much so that the people were now reluctant to fulfill this because it would become so difficult for them that not all of them could afford you know, sacrificing this cow. So this shows that going against the uh, commandments of the prophets and messengers, it has nothing but harm for the people themselves. And rather the opposite is just as true as well. That answer and respond to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when they call you to that which gives you life. Meaning that anything that comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it is going to bring you life. It is going to be a form of success for you in this life and the next. And this is why particularly the, the companions radiallahu anhum, they said that any time Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the term Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, pay very close attention to it. Because either Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to give you a commandment which will benefit you, or He's going to give you a prohibition that you need to stay away from that will harm you. So opposing the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa it has very detrimental effects. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah An-Nur, He makes it very clear. Then let those people who oppose the commandment of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, fear a, a great punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or that a fitna befall them. 
the scholars of tafsir, they commented on this verse, and they said the term fitna over here is that they would fall into disbelief. And this is what you actually see in our day and age. That the people that reject hadith, what are they actually doing? They're actually opposing the Messenger of Allah And you'll notice that what is this leading them to? This is leading them to abandoning the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That it is impossible for this deen to survive without its most fundamental sources of knowledge. The sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And this is why the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, amongst Ahlul Sunnah, it needs to be magnified, it needs to be glorified just like the Qur'an. And that the people of the sunnah, they need to implement the sunnah in terms of their actions, in terms of their clothing and dress, in terms of the way that they speak. Now a lot of people have this perception that when we talk about the sunnah, it's doing exactly what the Messenger of Allah said and did. But this is not the case. The sunnah is not meant to be taken literally. Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhum, uh, he was once seen urinating in a particular place. That he said, I'm going to go and urinate in that spot. So he was asked, why do you want to urinate over there? He said, because I saw the Messenger of Allah وسلم, urinate in that place. Umar anhu, when he found out about this, he rebuked Abdullah bin Umar. He said that just because the Messenger of Allah وسلم, did something in a particular place, it doesn't make it a sunnah automatically. But rather the Messenger of Allah he found a place that was convenient, so he went to the bathroom in that place. It doesn't make it a sunnah. Now similarly in our times, we need to understand that the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah is not literally everything that what he did, but rather it is looking at the spirit behind that message. So it was the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, that when he would have a, uh, a shirt on, he would always leave the top button open. This doesn't mean that if you were in the middle of winter in Calgary, that you're like, you know what, I'm going to implement the sunnah, I'm going to open up the top of my jacket and freeze to death. It doesn't work like that. At that time, the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah would have been to cover himself up. So you need to know what is the greater message that the Messenger of Allah is trying to get across. And once a person understands the greater message behind the sunnah and the objectives of the sharia, and he implements them, and he has good character like it was the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah this is when people come to accept the deen. But you'll notice that a lot of the times when people learn a hadith, and they learn a little bit of knowledge, they become very harsh, very strict, their adab goes you know, out the window, and then the average lay person, he's like, look, this is what happens when a person seeks knowledge, and he learns the hadith of the Messenger of Allah, he becomes very strict and he repels people. So there needs to be a balance in it that everyone needs to realize that just because the Messenger of Allah is dead, it doesn't mean that his sunnah is dead, but rather his sunnah is very alive, and it needs to be magnified and glorified just like the Qur'an, just like the Qur'an. Now let's talk about some issues that we can derive from this hadith. One of the things that we learn from this hadith is that hardship will always bring about ease. Hardship will always bring about ease. So when the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he said that the things that I command you with, do of them as much as you possibly can. The scholars of fiqh derived a principle, al-mashaqqatu tajlibu at-taysir. That anytime there's any form of hardship in the deen, then the deen itself will come with a concession. The deen itself will come with a concession. The clearest and obvious example, a person is traveling, then the concession is you can combine and shorten your prayers. Travel, uh, difficult to fast, and this is like one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made, trying to fast while traveling to, uh, to England, that literally it became like a 33 hour fast, subhanAllah. 
you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you that concession for a reason. So there's hardship in, uh, in traveling. Allah gives you the concession that you know what, you don't have to fast during that time and you can make it up at a different time. A second principle that the scholars of fiqh derived from this is that Darul Mafsada Awla Min Jalbil Maslaha That when there's an opposition between a commandment and a prohibition, then staying away from the prohibition takes precedence over fulfilling the commandment. Staying away from the prohibition takes precedence over fulfilling the commandment. So now let us look at examples of this. An example of this is a person who is sick and he has to make wudu with extremely cold water. So here he has the commandment of staying away, uh, sorry, he has the commandment of making wudu and wa washing deeply his arms and his legs and his face. But there's a harm involved as well. There's a harm involved as well. So staying away from the harm takes precedence over enjoining the good. So the principle we see over here is that if a person genuinely fears that he's going to be harmed by making cold wudu, then he can simply just make tayammum at that time and that is sufficient for him. And that is sufficient for him. So staying away from harm takes precedence than implementing a good. It takes precedence over implementing a good. A third principle that scholars derive from this hadith is that in times of necessity, even the impermissible will become permissible. Even the impermissible will become permissible. So you look at those things are of an utmost dire necessity. So a practical example over here. A general rule in Canada is that you have to have car insurance. You're legally not allowed to have a car until it has insurance on it. Now the ruling on insurance is that it is haram. Is, it, is that it is haram. So getting life insurance would not be uh, allowed for you. The general ruling on house insurance, it would not be allowed for you. And getting insurance on other things would not be allowed for you. However, having a necessity, sorry, having a car is a practical necessity for the vast majority of people. Taking Calgary as an example. So someone lives in like Airdrie and he has to come to work, you know, in downtown Calgary. Him taking public transportation, it'll take him like four hours to come, subhanAllah. Miskeen guy leaves his home at like 4.30 in the morning and he gets home at, you know, nine o'clock at night, even though he's only working like a nine to five job. So in such a situation, a car is a necessity. And this is a practical case for the vast majority of people. So now since the car becomes a necessity over here, then the ruling of insurance, even though it is haram to take insurance, it becomes permissible because the car is a necessity. So dururatu tubihu al-mahdurat, it is uh, one of the proofs for this is derived from this hadith. It is derived from this hadith. Now one last thing I want to comment on before we conclude our discussion, bithinlahi ta'ala, is this concept of, you know, doing what, as much as you can from those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded you with. And this is an actual verse in the Quran, in Surah Al-Taghabun, in verse number 16, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as much as you are able to. And I want to emphasize again that this concept of fearing Allah as much as we are able to, it needs to be understood in light of other verses as well. So you have this verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Fear Allah as much as you are able to. And then you have Surah Al-Imran verse 102, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu attaqullaha haqqa tuqatihi. That all you who believe have taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a taqwa that he is truly deserving of. 
So now you need to have both of these in their proper light. And what we derive from this again, and to summarize that discussion, is that this concept of trying your best, it only comes in those things that are not from the fundamentals of the religion. So the, the act of Tawheed, it needs to be fulfilled in its totality. The act of Salah, it doesn't matter how sick you are, you know, how busy you are, whatever you have in your life, your Salah needs to be prayed. Same thing with your fasting and your Zakah. Now, outside of the scope of the pillars of Islam, with everything else, there is flexibility. With everything else, there is flexibility. When it comes to the prohibitions, that is not the case. There's no concept of flexibility with prohibitions. Something is haram, it doesn't matter how much you're tempted by it, you need to stay away from it altogether. There's no flexibility. The flexibility is only in the commandments outside of the fundamentals of our faith. And that is where the flexibility lies. So that is the last point I wanted to mention to conclude our discussion for tonight before we open up uh, the floor for questions and answers. Yep, that's it from my end. Wallahu ta'ala alam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. We'll open up the floor for questions and answers, inshallah. Go ahead. So I have two questions. Sure. Uh, you mentioned to improve our knowledge, the teacher told we have to follow the Quran with the Hadith and also the two Hadith. Bukhari, Muslim, yeah. Yeah. But we know that all uh, some other hadiths also, uh, most of hadiths they are authentic. Right. So if we don't follow them or do practice them, so we are not getting lots of knowledge. Fantastic, very good question. Another thing, and another question is some people in Calgary say they put their, on their hair green turbine. Green turbans. What type of sunnah is it? <laughs> okay, inshallah, let's discuss these matters. So the first question that the brother had is that we were talking about how a Muslim should have a regular reading of tafsir, a reading of Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, and a reading of the seerah and Riyadh al-Salihin. And he said that if we were to implement this, we would be leaving off a lot of the authentic hadith found in the other books of hadith. Now when the Shaykh was mentioning this, he was talking about like a starting point. Right, so everyone needs a starting point. So the starting point should be having a regular reading of tafsir, making sure you're reading Bukhari and Muslim on a regular basis, and then the seerah and Riyadh al-Salihin. That's just a starting point. Once a person is familiar with these, then they move on to the other books of hadith. Now obviously the reason why we mentioned Bukhari and Muslim is because everything inside Bukhari and Muslim is authentic, right? Whereas the rest of the books, while the majority of them are authentic, there are certain things that are not authentic in those books. So as a beginner, you want to focus on those things that are purely authentic. Understand them and implement them to the best of your knowledge once you consult your teachers and so on and so forth. And that is what you want to start off with. And then once you progress, that is when you can move on to the other books of hadith. That is when you can move on to the other books of hadith. Now the second question is, sometimes we see people wearing green turbans. What type of sunnah is that? This leads into two discussions. Number one is the covering of the head actually a sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And this goes on to define what exactly is a sunnah within of itself. For the sake of our discussion, when we talk about the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, we're referring to those things that if a person was to do them, he would actually be rewarded for it. He would actually be rewarded for it. Not sunnah in the sense that this is what the Messenger of Allah وسلم, used to do. 
So discussing what the Messenger of Allah used to do, yes, the vast majority of times, the Messenger of Allah would have his head covered. And only in few cases was he ever seen that he didn't have his head covered. So that is what he used to do. Now do we have anything to prove the fact that if we were to cover our heads, we'd actually be rewarded for this? And the answer to that is no. There's not a single hadith that is authentic. There's a lot of fabricated ones, and I'll share a funny story with you. Um, but there's no authentic hadith that shows that you have to cover your head inside of salah or outside of salah. Or in fact, that there's any virtue in doing so. So from our standpoint, from a shari standpoint, if a person covers his head, it's not more virtuous. If he doesn't cover his head, it's not more virtuous. It is something that is permissible, that you can choose to do what you want or not in that case. However, Something that the tradition of scholars does show us, and this is mentioned by Ibn Abi Zayd, one of the uh, scholars of the Maliki Madhab, that it is a tradition for two people, the leaders of the community and the students of knowledge and scholars, that they keep their head covers at all times. And that's why you'll see a lot of you know, scholars that they choose to cover their head, even though that there's no virtue behind it, just because it is a tradition of the scholars of the past that they're trying to continue. Now the funny story, and then we'll get to the second part of your question. I was in Karachi, Pakistan. I was about 12 or 13 years old, and I went to go and pray in the masjid. And obviously, I didn't carry any hats with me. I didn't think it was that big of a deal, because in Canada, you know, if you don't wear a hat in the masjid, it's not a big deal at all. So I go and I, I start praying my, my sunnah prayers in, in, the, in the front of the masjid. And during my salah, a guy comes and he tries to put a hat on top of my head. You know, mashallah, tabarakallah, I have a very big head. Tries putting the hat, it doesn't fit. <laughs> in my salah, the guy goes back, he gets another hat, a bigger one. He comes and he tries to put that on my head. That doesn't work either. Now I've gone into Ruku and I've come back from Ruku and he's waiting behind me to put a third hat on my head. That didn't work either. I've gone into Sajda, come up from Sajda, gone down into Sajda, now I'm sitting over the Tashahud. In my Tashahud, what does this guy do? He took uh, a handkerchief out of his uh, pocket and he put it around my head. And if you were to look at this handkerchief, it was the most disgusting thing on the planet. It's like brown stains, his nose is blown on it, foul, terrible smell. And he's like trying to wrap it on my head in Salah. And I'm trying to stay serious. I'm like, what the hell is this guy doing? <laughs> and it shows you like the rigidity that some people have. That if you're not wearing your head in Salah, your Salah is bottled, you know, it's not valid whatsoever. Now it was very unfortunate, you know, I didn't speak Urdu at that time, or not very well at least, and he only spoke Urdu, our discussion didn't go anywhere. But again, it was a very traumatizing experience uh, for me. So now that answers the question of the issue of covering the head uh, or not. In terms of the, the color green, it is authentically established that green was uh, a color that the Messenger of Allah liked. So if a person wears a green turban, because he wants to follow the example of the Messenger of Allah and he knows that the Messenger of Allah used to like green, then we say that this is something that is permissible for him. However, we notice that there is a community, not only in Calgary, but you know, spread across the world called the Barelvi community. And this Barelvi community, they wear green turbans to show that this is the faith that they follow. This is the faith that they follow. Now when you look at some of the rudimentary beliefs that this faith has, obviously it has some very dangerous beliefs. That one, that the Prophet ﷺ is still alive. Number two, that the Prophet ﷺ is Hazir and Nazir, meaning that he's present and all aware of everything that's going on. So these are just some of the issues. So we're not going to make a ruling predominantly based upon the wearing of a green turban. But if you see someone, you know there's nothing wrong in asking them, you know, why are you waking, wearing this green turban? 
You know, if they tell you they're from the Brelvi community, then it might be you know, not a bad idea that maybe try to give some da'wah, have a discussion with them if you're able to. If you're not able to give them da'wah and have a discussion, it'd be probably best to, to stay away from them altogether. Wallahu ta'ala ala. Any other questions? Go ahead. You were saying that, um, like for example, when you were uh, traveling, you chose not to, you have a choice of uh, shortening your salah. There are some teachers who have said that when you don't take these concessions into account, it's a form of showing um, ungratefulness. Definitely, definitely. Uh, how would you evaluate the two in terms of balancing it? Okay. And if, like, for example, you're traveling and you get your destination and you can pay the full salah, then why not pay it? You get the, the jama'ah or whatever the case may be. Right. So I think the issue of the jama'ah is a separate case because, you know, a person should try to pray in jama'ah whether he's a traveler or not. And this is what we saw from the companions that even when they would travel, they would try to go and pray in the masjid as much as they were able to. Anas ibn Malik, when he was in Syria, he got uh, appointed as a governor or a mayor or something like that. And they actually made him imam of the masjid. So for two years while he was there, he's leading the salah. Uh, shortening, not combining. So he prayed Dhuhr, but shortened. Asr, but shortened. And the people would pray behind him. And that shows the, uh, the value of the masjid that they had. Um, but in terms of, you know, when you're by yourself, you're not going to the masjid, what should you do in that time? Yes, you should take. The general case scenario is that you should take the concessions unless you have a reason not to. So what could be like a valid reason for you not to? So an ideal example of this is a person who travels frequently and regularly. So the month of Ramadan comes and you have to travel like a third of Ramadan, it's like 10 days, okay? Now over there you have the opportunity to take the concession and you know what, make it up after Ramadan. But you realize, you know what, I live in Calgary and summertime comes around if I need to make up these fasts. You know the fasts are like ridiculously long, 20 hours or so. Why would I wait to fast at that time when I can fast in the winter time? So here if you have the ability without putting hardship on yourself, you're not required to take the concession. Because the concession would actually be more difficult upon you. If that, if that makes sense. So this is under the scenario that Ramadan's in winter time over here and you're making up your fasts in summertime. That's where you, uh, that's like a reason why you wouldn't take a concession. So the general case scenario is you want to take the concessions unless you have a reason not to. To leave it off altogether, yes, you would be sinful. So for instance, as you know what, I'm always going to pray my prayers in full and I'm going to fast in Ramadan even though I'm traveling, then yes, that would be uh, uh, something that they would be sinful for. Wallahu ta'ala. One last question. Go ahead. I heard from another sheikh that uh, if you make a masa on the socks, yeah. so the, that socks should be able to, that it can walk for 1.6 kilometers. 1.6? How about 1.59? How about if you can only walk 1.59? Okay, so if that doesn't break, <laughs> then you can make This is actually a very good question, mashallah. Most people make a masa, I don't know why. Fantastic, a very good question. So now, just so the people who are listening, the question is about wiping over socks and how in order, one of the conditions for you to wear socks that you can wipe on is that you have to be able to walk 1.6 kilometers in those socks in order for you to wipe over them. Now, the first thing we want to look at, the wiping over the socks. Is this a concession from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Or is this a general ruling? The answer to this is that it is a concession from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this act of wiping over the socks in order to make things easy for the people. And you'll notice that when it comes to the issue of wiping over the socks, people actually make it very, very difficult upon themselves. So there are certain things that the sharia 
did not legislate and we legislated out of our own whims and desires. So for example, people saying that the only socks that you can wipe over are leather socks. Or people saying that you can only wipe over those socks that you know the water cannot penetrate through. Or wiping over those socks that have no holes in them whatsoever. Right? These type of conditions you'll see that they're not actually found in the Quran and the Sunnah. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us these commandments, when the Messenger of Allah taught us how to make mas upon our socks and clothing, these things were not mentioned by them. But rather scholars later on introduced them to try to be on the safer side. But one of the things that was forgotten at that time, or not forgotten but perhaps not emphasized, was that the concept of wiping over the socks is a rukhsa, it's meant to be made easy for the people. And when we introduce all these extra conditions, it actually makes things difficult. So uh, we would say to this is that there's only two important things to mention or keep in mind when wiping over the socks. Number one is that they have to cover your ankles. The Messenger of Allah he made this very clear that a sock will be that thing that covers up to the ankle. Same thing applies to the shoes if you want to wipe over your shoes. It has to be covering your ankle. Number two is that it should be something that is you know, qualifiably called a sock. So anything that we would call a sock, whether it's made out of wool, cotton, or leather, or anything else, then even if there's holes in it, you're allowed to wipe over it. And it's not that big of a deal. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. I hope that makes sense, inshallah. Here okay, we'll conclude with that. If we can get someone to make the adhan, please. And then we will follow it by the iqama at 10 o'clock, bi-ithnillahi ta'ala. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.